Hello, and welcome to the history of ancient Greece. If you haven't listened before, you're in for a treat. Ryan Stitt is taking us on an in-depth exploration of Greek history, culture, and philosophy. And this week, he's introducing us to the eventful reign of the Persian king Cambyses, Cyrus's son and successor. Cambyses took the Persian army to Egypt. You can imagine him looking at the Great Pyramid, already over 2,000 years old at that point, and saying, whoa, or something like that. Records are sketchy. But anyway, the pyramid is where I come in. I'm Drew Varenkamp, host of a new podcast, The Wonders of the World. In my podcast, I visit the great places on Earth to tell the story of our people, our civilization, and our planet. I started with the original seven wonders, like the Great Pyramid, and over the course of my podcast, I'll take you to many other amazing places around the world and share the story of how they came to be, the people who built them, travel tips on how to visit today, and even what to eat when you're there, because, come on, you gotta eat. As Ryan tells you about the history, the tragedy, and in some cases, the comedy of ancient Greece and its neighbors, drop by my podcast, where I'll tell you more about places like Olympia, Halicarnassus, and Alexandria. So I'll turn this over to Ryan, as he tells you about Cambyses, and the important lesson of how not to travel to Egypt. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 32, Cambyses. With his customary wisdom and foresight, Cyrus had already pondered the question of royal succession, and with his actions, he had made it very clear that he wanted his eldest son, Cambyses, known by modern scholars as Cambyses II, to succeed him. After Cyrus had conquered Babylon, Cambyses was selected to lead the religious ceremonies, endearing him to the pious Babylonians. Also, in the Cyrus Cylinder, Cambyses' name is listed alongside with his father's name in the prayers to Marduk, the chief Babylonian deity. So, it's no surprise that he made his eldest son the satrap over Babylon, allowing him to earn the goodwill and influence over a vastly important part of the empire. Cyrus's next action, though, ensured that Cambyses would succeed him without any hiccup. Before setting out for his last expedition in the east, Cyrus had sent his son back to Pasargadae in case anything were to happen. Well, as we discussed last episode, Cyrus met his end against the Mazagetai, and Cambyses was immediately hailed as the new Persian king back in the capital. While Cyrus's younger son, Bardia, would govern the satrapy of Bactria, modern-day Afghanistan, and keep watch on the empire's volatile eastern frontier. In order to forestall any rivals, both boys were married off to their sisters, Atossa and Roxanne, making for a neat little compact and incestuous royal family. The Persians trusted Cyrus's good judgment, though, as he freed them from being subjugated to the Medes, so nobody challenged his succession plans or the unseemly marriage of his children. We can tell that the two sons also trusted Cyrus's decision-making, and each other, due to the fact that Cambyses' first campaign as king was completely reliant upon his younger brother covering his back in the east, as he devoted his attention to the project that would define his reign, the conquest of Egypt, the last great Near Eastern power. Meanwhile, where we left Egypt in episode 15, Amasis II was building on the accomplishments of Samatikos's line, elevating Egypt to new levels of prosperity. Not coincidentally, Egypt's ties to the Greeks were stronger than ever. Nocritus continued to rise as a major trade hub, and powerful Greek advisors were common presence in the royal palace. 
Ionian and Carian mercenaries continued to be employed in his army. Amasis II even allied himself with Croesus and performed the novel act of marrying a Greek princess, Lodike, the daughter of King Battus III of Cyrene. When Delphi burned in 547 BC, Amasis II had devoted an enormous sum of a thousand talents for its reconstruction, with the only comparable donation coming from the Alcmeonidae. Battus III ruled Cyrene from 550 to 530 BC. Plutarch bestowed upon him the surname the Lame, because he was born with a defective leg that caused him to limp. In order to safeguard against the Libyans, he entered into a formal alliance with Egypt with the marriage of his daughter Lodike to the pharaoh Amasis II, as we previously mentioned. Next, in order to stabilize his family's recent instability, he sought advice from the oracle at Delphi. The Pythia advised him to visit Manitinea, a city-state in Arcadia, and asked for a man named Demonax to assist him in reforming the Cyrenean constitution. Upon arriving in Cyrene, he conducted a detailed investigation of the community and divided the people into three tribes, those whose ancestors originally came from Thera, those from the Peloponnese and Crete, and those from the other Aegean islands. From those three tribes, representatives would be selected to serve in an assembly in which the king oversaw. Essentially, the new constitution had reduced the powers, responsibilities, and authority of the king. The monarchy remained, however, though the king only had the authority to grant land to citizens and be chief priest in charge of religious duties. In addition, Demonax set aside specific precincts and priesthoods for Battus III, but everything else that had belonged to the kings, he made public and placed into the hands of the people. He also created an armed police of 300 men in order to patrol and protect the city. After completing the reforms, Demonax immediately left Cyrene. These reforms continued in force throughout the rest of the reign of Battus III. Amasis II had also allied himself with another powerful Greek figure, Polycrates, the enlightened tyrant of Samos, from 538 to 522 BC. He had a reputation as a fierce warrior and was a very ambitious figure. In 538 BC, the year after Cyrus had taken Babylon, Polycrates had seized control of Samos in collusion with his two brothers, Pantagnotus and Silosun, during an all-night festival in honor of the goddess Hera. At first, he divided the city into three parts and shared it with his two brothers, but almost immediately he decided to shore up his singular tyranny by killing one brother, Pantagnotos, and banishing the other, Silosun. He then quickly became a player on the international scene, making alliances with both Amasis II and his neighboring tyrant, Ligdamos of Naxos. Polycrates saw that the path to power for an island like Samos lay through the sea. So after raising a fleet of a hundred triremes and an army of a thousand archers, Polycrates quickly turned to piracy by plundering the islands and coastal territories of the Aegean and taxing ships that passed through the surrounding waters. The Samians became notorious for intercepting valuable diplomatic gifts sent between the rulers of mainland Greece and Anatolia. Such actions made Polycrates many enemies, but he also made Samos a great naval power that was widely feared, respected, and enormously wealthy. In fact, they became the dominant sea power of the eastern Aegean. At that time, the twelve cities of the Ionian League were still under domination of the Persian satrap of Anatolia. Only one coastal city remained quasi-independent. As we discussed last episode, Cyrus had taken note of Miletus' neutrality at the Battle of Thimbra, 
and instructed Harpagus to give them better terms than the other Greeks. Of course, local politics didn't matter much to Polycrates. Bolstered by mercenaries from Lagdamus of Naxos, his Samian warships defeated and captured the fleets of both Miletus and Mytilene, seizing their cargo and enslaving their crews. He also conquered the small island of Rhenea, which he dedicated to nearby Delos, as a dedication to Apollo. Despite his career of theft and plunder, back home, Polycrates did whatever he could to cultivate a reputation as an enlightened ruler. With the Ionian mainland having fallen under Persian dominion, he had perhaps the strongest sea power in the eastern Aegean, and with it, he controlled the important religious center of Delos. He was a patron of the arts, attracting famous poets such as Anacreon and Ibycus, whose works we discussed in episode 19. According to Herodotus, the physicians of Croton were considered the foremost among the Greeks, among which Demosthenes was the most prominent. Accordingly, he traveled around Greece, working as a public physician at Agina and at Athens, before he ended up working in the court of Polycrates. One Samian native who remained unimpressed by Polycrates, though, was the famous philosopher, mathematician, and mystic Pythagoras. Not wanting to live under his tyranny, he left his home city around 530 BC for Croton one of the largest Greek cities of southern Italy, where he founded his school of Pythagoreans. We discussed his life and his teachings in greater detail in episode 20. With his newly gained riches and Mytilenian and Milesian slaves, Polycrates embarked on an ambitious building program. He built up defensive walls around his capital city and had an entire trench dug out that encircled the city wall of Samos and the harbor in the sea. It was 120 feet deep, with a length of over 1,200 feet. He also built an elaborate royal palace and commissioned the largest temple up to that point, that being the Temple of Hera, whose ruins still illustrate its immense size. Amasis II dedicated many gifts at this temple, but his most famous achievement, and what led him to receive high praise from Herodotus, was his solution to the problem that plagued many citizens in the arid Mediterranean climate, drinking water. There was plenty of water available in a nearby spring, but it was separated from the city by the 900-foot-high Mount Castro. Somehow, Polycrates and his engineer, Eupolinus, had to figure out how to connect the city and the spring. Running it around the mountain was not an option, because that could easily be cut out by a besieging army, which would make all of his fortifications useless with no water supply during a siege. Thinking outside the box, Eupolinus, came up with a solution that literally meant moving a mountain by building a tunnel straight through Mount Castro. It would be a huge project and a lengthy one. The time needed for such a project would have been enormous, so they decided to half it by driving tunnels from both sides until they met in the middle. In order to succeed, Eupinalus would have to be sure that each tunnel started at the same vertical height on opposite sides of the mountain, as well as match up on a horizontal plane. Otherwise, they would pass each other like ships in the night. Without sophisticated surveying equipment, it was a remarkable challenge to take on. One theory involves him walking around the mountain. By forging a path from the spring to the city in short perpendicular lines, Eupinalus could measure each small length in order to calculate two sides of a right triangle. With two known sides of a triangle, the hypotenuse became the path of the tunnel through the mountain. What made this even more amazing is that it involved two tunnels. The main one was dug at a height and length of 6 feet by 6 feet, but was only used as a workspace to dig a second tunnel adjacent and below the main one. 
This channel was 30 feet deep and 3 feet wide and would serve as the actual aqueduct. While the work tunnel was dug on a straight plane, the aqueduct tunnel was dug from the side and below as it needed to be angled at a slight gradient to allow the water to flow gently through the pipes downward into the city of Samos from the spring. The two crews met in the middle almost exactly where Eupanalus had envisioned with only 24 inches difference in between them, a discrepancy of less than one-eighth of a percent of the tunnel's 3,500-foot length. This tunnel, which is indeed a marvel of ancient engineering, still exists, and its entrance also can still be seen. Herodotus relates an interesting, but likely fictional exchange between Polycrates and Amasis II. The Egyptian pharaoh did not fail to notice Polycrates' exceptionally good fortune, and it worried him, for he believed that a man's life is a continuous alternation of fortune, rather than success in everything, and he had not heard of anyone enjoying good fortune in all things, and not ultimately dying in total disaster. So he wrote a letter, advising him to throw away whatever he valued the most, in order to escape a Croesus-like reversal of fortune. We're starting to see a trend here in Herodotus. Anyway, Polycrates thought this to be good advice, so he searched for the one heirloom, in his possession, whose loss would most afflict his heart, and selected an emerald-encrusted ring. So he manned a penticonter and ordered his men to put it out to the sea. When he had reached a far enough distance from Samos, he took off his ring and threw it into the Aegean. He then sailed back and mourned his loss. A few days later, though, a fisherman caught a huge and beautiful fish, and instead of taking it to the market to sell, he instead took it to Polycrates as a gift. He graciously accepted it and invited the fisherman to dine with him and enjoy the fish as well. But when his cooks cut open the huge fish, they discovered the ring of Polycrates inside its belly. A gleeful Polycrates believed that it had to have been an act of the gods, and he immediately wrote word to Amasis II. When he read the letter, the pharaoh immediately broke off their alliance, believing that anyone that lucky was destined for a disastrous end and he didn't want to hitch a ride to that wagon any longer. Although their alliance would indeed be broken, and Polycrates would meet a disastrous end, the reasons for those developments likely lie in the complex political maneuverings of the new Persian king, Cambyses, and not due to Herodotus' account. It was more than likely Polycrates who broke off this Samian-Egyptian friendship, once he realized Cambyses' intentions of Egyptian conquest, as the Persians were far stronger than Egypt. And thanks to having control of the Phoenicians, they could wield sea power that could directly threaten Samos. As we just mentioned, Cambyses wanted to conquer the last great Near Eastern power in Egypt, but he waited until they gave him a reason to go to war. He did this first by sending a request to Amasis for the best physician in all of Egypt who specialized in the treatment of the eyes, so an oculist. Amasis complied, but the physician which he chose to go to Cambyses resented him for being torn from his wife and children, so he decided to take revenge on the Egyptian pharaoh to his new Persian ruler. The xenophobic Egyptians had always been reluctant to give up their women to be the wives of foreign rulers. Fully aware of this, the oculist told Cambyses to ask Amasis for the hand of one of his daughters in marriage, under the pretense of solidifying the bonds between their two great kingdoms. Having no desire to surrender his daughter to be a concubine, but also not wanting to refuse the Persian ruler, Amasis decided instead to send the daughter of the previous pharaoh, a priest, a tall and beautiful woman named Nititis, instructing her to pass herself off as his own daughter. Why he thought that she would go for this scheme is beyond comprehension, 
as he was the one to kill her father after all. So he dressed her up in fine clothing and gold, and then sent her off to Pasargidae. But almost immediately, she divulged her true origins and Amasis' intent of deception. Infuriated at the insult, or so he claimed, Cambyses announced his intention to exact retribution on Amasis. This all is related by Herodotus. But the real reason why Cambyses wanted to attack Egypt, though, we must guess, for there is no evidence other than Herodotus' pretty story, is that Persia had embarked on a policy of imperial expansion, and Egypt, which was both ancient and rich, and now on Persia's border, was next in line. The next few years were spent by both sides preparing for the inevitable war. For Amasis, this meant leaning heavily on the aid of his foreign allies, recruiting more Greek mercenaries, requesting the aid of friendly Greek cities, and meeting with Greek advisors who could relate firsthand the Persian tactics against Ionia. Prominent among his Greek counselors was a tactician and mercenary soldier named Phanes from the Ionian city of Halicarnassus. Herodotus says that he was a man of good judgment and a brave warrior in battle. But something inexplicit happened between these two men, something which Herodotus himself couldn't explain, but the result was a serious falling out. As a result, Phanes left Egypt in 527 BC for the court of Cambyses. Amasis immediately sent his most trusted eunuch to bring Phanes back, dead or alive, because he was in possession of precise military intelligence vital to Egypt's defense. After a ship chase into Anatolia, the eunuch caught up with Phanes in Lycia, but the wily Phanes managed to get his guards drunk and slipped away again. This time he made it all the way to Cambyses, who was currently at Babylon, preparing for his march on Egypt. The Persian king welcomed him with open arms and eagerly listened to all that he had to tell. He was particularly grateful for Phanes' strategic advice to petition the Arabian kings to allow the Persian army safe passage through to the Egyptian frontier. For this, and his in-depth knowledge of Amasis' war preparations, including their defensive strategy and the size of their forces, Phanes was made a general in the Persian army. As we mentioned before, it was probably Polycrates who broke his alliance with Amasis, and not the other way around, as told by the fanciful story in Herodotus, and it was probably at this point that he did so. Realizing that his navy would not be able to cope with the joint armaments of the Phoenicians, and now the Cypriots, who had recently flipped to the Persian side, Polycrates also chose to ally himself with the Persians. And so, instead of coming to the aid of his former ally, he promised to send Cambyses a fleet of 40 triremes to use as naval support in his war with Egypt. In an effort to kill two birds with one stone, manning these ships were Samian citizens who Polycrates considered dangerous to his rule, and he sent along a message to Cambyses that he should kill all these men and take the ships upon arrival. This part of the plan backfired, though. The Samians somehow had managed to put it all together, and before they reached Egypt, they turned the triremes around and sailed right back to Samos. When they arrived, Polycrates engaged them in a naval battle. The returning men won, though, and disembarked onto the island. Apparently, Polycrates had gathered the children and wives of all of his people and crowded them together into a ship shed, so that if any decided to turn into a traitor, he would set them all on fire, together with the ship shed. So with that as motivation, Polycrates' army defeated the exiles in a battle on land, and so the defeated exiles then sailed away to Sparta. By the way, shipsheds were large buildings in which boats could be built or dragged up out of the water to remain dry during the winter months or to undergo repairs and maintenance. 
When the exiled Samians arrived before the Spartan assembly, they made a speech imploring for help that lasted so long that the Spartans responded that they had forgotten what was said at the beginning. So the Samians tried again. This time, they brought a sack with them and said only that the sack needed barley. The Spartans then answered that the word sack was not needed. They could have simply pointed to the sack and deleted that word from their speech. Regardless, the Spartans did resolve to help them. Sparta is in the business of liberating tyrannies after all, except in the case of Athens, where they like to try to install puppet tyrants. But that is neither here nor there. Anyways, some scholars believe that Sparta's real reason for attacking Samos was to prevent it from Medizing, or allying with Persia, and thus to impede further Persian encroachment into Greek territories. Regardless, this is likely another fictional exchange by Herodotus, as this episode seems to be a parody of the famous Spartan laconic manner of speaking, in which brevity and bluntness were sought and applauded. The Spartans then made their preparations for a campaign against Samos. Corinth, too, was eager to participate in the Samian expedition. Herodotus relays some tale of past anger against the Samians during the rule of the tyrant Periander. But wanting Corinthian trade to stop suffering from Samian piracy probably was the real reason. Anyways, the Peloponnesians sailed to Samos with a huge force in 525 BC. Upon arrival, they besieged the city by assaulting the wall at the tower which faces the Aegean Sea and lies at the entrance to the city. But Polycrates then counterattacked with a large force of his own and drove them away. Then, a great number of Samians, along with their mercenaries, charged down from the upper tower on the mountain ridge and engaged the attacking Peloponnesians. But after a short time, they were forced to retreat, and the Peloponnesians followed, chasing and killing many of them before they reached their city. Safe behind their walls, the Spartans laid siege to Samos. But after 40 days, very little progress was made. It should be noted that the Greeks weren't used to besieging cities quite yet, as hoplite battles usually took place on open plains. Anyways, frustrated, the Peloponnesians returned back to the Peloponnese. This was the first time that the Spartans had ever led an army into Asia, and although it ultimately was a failure, it won't be the last such venture that they make. It should also be noted that the Spartans on the way back in 524 BC also intervened on the island of Naxos, but this time, they were able to successfully overthrow the rule of their tyrant Lygdamus and establish an oligarchy. No other details of this have been recorded, though. Afterwards, the exiled Samians sailed away to the island of Sifnos in order to do what Samians do, plundering, stealing, and being pirates. At the same time, Sifnos, due to their gold and silver mines, were at the peak of their prosperity and had become the wealthiest of all the islanders. We have discussed in episode 17 the Sifnian treasury at Delphi that was made around this time, which was one of the wealthiest treasuries found there. While they built their treasury, they had consulted the oracle about whether their present prosperity would last a long time. The Pythia replied, When the city hall is white, and the agora white-browed, then should wary men beware of wooden ambush, and a herald in red. At that time, both the agora and the city hall of the Sifnians were adorned with pure white Parian marble. The Sifnians, though, were unable to interpret this oracle but it must have been clear what it meant once the exiled Samians arrived in 524 BC, since their ships were painted in red, and they were the wooden ambush and a herald in red that the Pythia had predicted. And so, when the Samians started ravaging the island, the Sifnians armed themselves and ran out to defend their land. In the battle that followed, 
The Scythians were defeated and found themselves cut off from their town by the Samians. In order to get it back, they were forced to pay the Samians a hundred talents. This, however, didn't bring about the end of Scythian wealth. That would occur at some point in the next century. Pausanias says their mines were obliterated by a flood, but modern scholars suggest that they were simply exhausted due to overuse. Anyways, the exiled Samians then left Siphnos, and with money in hand, they settled at Cadonia, on the northwestern coastline of Crete. They remained there and prospered for five years. But in 519 BC, the Cretans, with assistance from the Aginetans, conquered them in a naval battle and enslaved them. The prows of the Samian ships were dedicated to the sanctuary of Athena at Agina. Meanwhile, in 526 BC, facing a growing certainty of his country's ruin, Amasis II died and his son, Samotikos III, was proclaimed pharaoh. During his coronation at Thebes, it began to rain, an event that, according to Herodotus, never happened in Egypt before, foreshadowing dark things to come. And so, in the spring of 525 BC, having secured safe passage, the armies of Cambyses set out through the desert of northern Arabia for Egypt. In preparation, the shipbuilders of Phoenicia were commissioned to provide a massive fleet of triremes, and troops were assembled from all corners of the empire, under the leadership of Phanes. He had recommended that Cambyses seek out peaceful diplomatic relations with the Arabians. This was especially important because since the quickest land route into Egypt was through the Sinai Peninsula, traveling through miles of hot desert, these locals knew how to transport water in camel skin bags. So they met up with the Persians while they were marching, thus allowing Cambyses' army to make the trip safely and without delay. When the Persians arrived at the gates of Pelusium, the easternmost city on the Nile Delta, where the Egyptian army was positioned, they were met by a young and untested pharaoh. As the two armies faced each other, Samatikos took this opportunity to exact revenge on Phanes, who in his hurry to flee Egypt, had left behind his sons. And so, they were brought out to the front lines between the two armies, and in the sight of their father, they had their throats cut over a large wine bowl, one by one. After the boys were killed, they then added wine and water to their blood in the bowl, which was then drank by the Egyptian officers. Or at least that's what Herodotus records. Phanes was grief-stricken and enraged from this cruelty, but he was able to keep his composure and lead the Persians into battle. Herodotus tells us very little about the details, but according to a later source, in the 2nd century AD, Polyanus, who wrote a piece of work called Stratagems in War, Phanes employed an unusual strategy. We know that the Egyptians loved cats, from the cat-headed goddess Bastet to the numerous mummified cat remains found in their temples and graves. They were so revered that when a cat died, the owner shaved off their eyebrows as a public sign of grief. It was even said that when a building was on fire, it was more important to get the cats out first before the people. Knowing all of this, as the battle started, Phanes supposedly had his troops paint an image of Bastet, the cat-headed goddess, to their shields, hoping that it would cause the Egyptians to hesitate before attacking, since defiling an image of a cat was considered a mortal sin. Well, he assumed correctly, and so the native Egyptian forces were rendered useless in battle. However, the Egyptian army still had their Greek mercenaries. It seems that both armies employed Greek mercenaries of likely equal ability. In fact, this may have been the first time in history that Greeks from the same polis 
fought one another under the command of foreign rulers. The Persian army was victorious, though, not on the skill of their soldiers, but because the Egyptian army was now vastly outnumbered due to the paralysis of the native Egyptian troops. Because the Egyptians were more worried about their soul in the afterlife than their lot in this world. When Cambyses entered the city, he is said to have burst into laughter and hurled cats at them mockingly. Herodotus, who purported to have visited the battlefield years later, describes a sea of skulls in the Nile Basin. It's recorded that 50,000 Egyptian soldiers died, compared to only 7,000 Persians. Herodotus also makes an observation here. He says that the Egyptian skulls were hard, while the Persian ones were soft and brittle. His reasoning is that the Egyptians shaved their heads at a young age, and exposure to sunshine thus causes them to thicken. But the Persians do not shave their heads and wear head coverings, making them softer. While I am no scientist and will not profess to the validity of Herodotus's claim, this is a pretty interesting, albeit odd, anecdote nonetheless. Regardless, after the Egyptian army was routed in battle, Samatikos and what was left of his army fled in a panicky disorder back to Memphis. Joined by his fleet, which had sailed into the Nile Delta, Cambyses pursued after them. He dispatched a Mytilenean ship carrying a Persian herald to sail up the Nile to the port of Memphis. Yes, I said up. That is because the Nile River is one of the few rivers in the world that flows south to north and not north to south. Anyways, the herald was to plead with the Egyptians to surrender and enter into an agreement with the Persian king, thus avoiding further bloodshed. But being a very proud people, the Egyptians refused, and when they saw the ship approaching Memphis, they all rushed out to meet them, seized the herald's ship, killed all 200 people on board, and carried their torn-off limbs back into the city of Memphis. Infuriated at both their defiance and breach of diplomatic protocol, Cambyses laid siege to Memphis. When the city was finally taken, after a lengthy siege, and Samaticus was captured, he entered Memphis in triumph and was hailed as the new pharaoh. Egyptian inscriptions show that Cambyses officially adopted the titles and dress of a pharaoh. From this great victory, Cambyses finished the job his father started and brought all four great Near Eastern empires under one Persian banner. Cambyses avenged his ambassador's deaths in this way. He brought Samatikos and other prominent Egyptians before him in chains. They were ordered to be seated in front of the entrance to the town. Then, he had their daughters dressed like slave girls and forced to carry jugs out to the wells to be filled. As the girls walked past, all the fathers cried out, except for Samatikos. Next, Cambyses sent out the son of Samatikos with 2,000 other Egyptians the same age bound with ropes around their necks and bits in their mouths. They were being led to their death, for Cambyses' advisors had determined that for each member of the ship's crew, it would have been 200, since they used a trireme, that had been killed, 10 eminent Egyptians were to be put to death in return. Samatikos, though, behaved just as he had in the case of his daughter. But then, it so happened that an elderly man passed them. He was one of Samatikos' former drinking buddies, who had lost his property and was now a pauper. When Samatikus saw him, he bursted into tears. Cambyses was perplexed at his reaction, so he sent a messenger to ask him why he didn't cry when he saw his daughter being degraded or his son marching off to his death, but granted that honor instead to a beggar who was of no relation to him. Samatikos replied, My family's misfortunes are too horrible for me to weep over, 
but the grief of my friend was worthy of my tears. He has fallen from great prosperity into the life of a beggar, just as he arrives at the threshold of old age. Similarly, just like with his father and Croesus, Cambyses was moved by this and decided to spare Samatikos, sending him back to Susa to be a sort of hostage. However, no more than a year later, he attempted a rebellion and thus was forced to commit suicide by drinking the blood of a bull. I'm not sure if we've mentioned this before, but consuming the blood of a bull was a preferred way of forcing someone to kill themselves in antiquity because bull's blood was supposed to coagulate in the throat and thus choke the drinker from asphyxiation. A few years later, an equally grim fate happened for the world's current most fortunate man, Polycrates. In 522 BC, Polycrates celebrated an unusual festival in honor of both the god Apollo of Delos and of Delphi. It has been suggested that the Homeric hymn to Apollo was composed for this occasion. Anyways, later that year, the satrap of Magnesia, a man named Oretes, decided that Polycrates' naval power was unsuitable to the development of Persia. Herodotus relays a tale in which a Persian named Mitrobates questions Oroetes' manhood, since he had failed to add Samos to the Persian king's realm, although it lies adjacent to his province. This supposedly infuriated Oroetes, because, well, you can't question a ruler's manhood, and so he devised a trap to ensnare the tyrant. In all actuality, he was probably infuriated by constant Samian attacks along the Ionian coast. Not a slight to his manhood, but who knows. Anyways, he sent word to Polycrates that Cambyses had ordered Oreates' death for some fictitious offense, and thus he was revolting, and if the tyrant would come to Sardis and pledge his support to Oreates, he'd be richly rewarded with Lydian gold. Polycrates was delighted, and so he sent a man named Myandrios to investigate the matter. Oreates, meanwhile, had filled eight chests with stones, except for the top layer, which he piled with gold. So when Myandrios came to inspect the chests, he was duped and reported back to Polycrates that Oroetes was telling the truth. Polycrates then prepared to visit Magnesia himself, but his daughter cautioned him against doing this, as she recently had a vision of his death. She dreamt that he would be suspended in the air, washed by Zeus and anointed by the sun god Helios. But in the end, the lure of gold was too strong for Polycrates. Her constant bombardment annoyed him, and so he threatened that when he did return home safely, if she didn't drop the matter, he would ensure that she would remain an unmarried virgin for life. Well, she dropped it and led her father, the world's most fortunate man, to his own devices. And just as you might expect, when he arrived at Magnesia, he was seized and assassinated. The manor is not recorded by Herodotus, as it was apparently an undignified end for such a glorious tyrant. Most scholars believe that he was impaled and died in agony on a stake, where his corpse was publicly crucified. In this manner, the prophecy was thus fulfilled, as when it rained, he was washed by Zeus, and when the sun shone, he was anointed by Helios, as the moisture was sweated from him. Thus, all the prosperity and fortune of Polycrates came to a brutal end, just as Amasis had prophesied. With that being said, Herodotus does say that with the exception of the tyrants of Syracuse, not one of the other Greek tyrants can compare with Polycrates in terms of magnificence. But all of this didn't happen until the end of Cambyses' reign, so let's turn back to North Africa. While lacking his father's temperate disposition, 
Cambyses clearly inherited his father's passion for conquest, as Cambyses had hardly begun to incorporate Egypt when he started eyeing targets for new conquests. Meanwhile, the Libyans had grown quite alarmed at what had happened to Egypt, and so they had surrendered to Cambyses without a fight, and Thanes struck a treaty with the local chiefs. Since an attack on Libya was unnecessary, Cambyses next turned his attention westward to the coastal Greek territory of Cyrene. In order to demonstrate his respect and generosity, he returned to Massus's former queen, Latiki, to her brother, Arcesilus III, the new king of Cyrene, who ruled from 530 to 515 BC. The citizens of Cyrene and Barca, a Cyrenian colony, shared the same fears as the Libyans and thus yielded similarly. But while Cambyses had welcomed the gifts from the Libyans, the Cyrenians had only sent 500 minas of silver. We haven't talked much about coinage values, and I plan on going into it much deeper in a future episode. But for now, just know that 500 minas of silver equals 50,000 drachmas. A trireme with a crew of 200 men, each earning half a drachma a day, would require 3,000 drachmas for each month of operations at sea. So 500 minas was only enough to keep one trireme operating for about eight months. Apparently, Cambyses was displeased with this amount and wanted way more. So he dispatched an army 50,000 strong under Thanes westward to coerce better gifts. Thanes' first target, though, was not Cyrene, but instead the Ammonians, or those who lived near the Egyptian oracle of Amun, whose Greek equivalent was Zeus. The oracle was located in the Siwa oasis, just south of Cyrene. The priests there had significant political clout, and he had refused to acknowledge Cambyses as a pharaoh. So Thanes was instructed to reduce the Ammonians to total slavery and set fire to the oracle of Amun in order to persuade him. However, Thanes led the force into the desert, and they were never heard from again. They never reached the Ammonians, nor did they ever return to Egypt. The Ammonians told Herodotus that they were buried by a massive sandstorm, as a strong wind blew upon them from the south, pouring over them until they were buried in dunes. Thus, they have come to be known as the famous Lost Army of Cambyses. Although many Egyptologists regard the story as a myth, People have searched for the remains of the soldiers for many years. The Cyrenians were thus not forced to provide more silver because ominous events were shaping up that led Cambyses to give up on his desire for more North African conquest. Meanwhile, Cambyses, who was still at Memphis, had ordered his navy to sail against Carthage, but his Phoenician sailors refused his orders because they refused to make war against their countrymen. Without the cooperation of the Phoenicians, the rest of his navy was inadequate for such a campaign against the mighty Carthaginians, who, if you recall from episode 28, were becoming the Western Mediterranean superpower by this point. Cambyses didn't think it right to apply undue pressure on the Phoenicians, both because they had surrendered to the Persians voluntarily, and because Persian naval power depended entirely on them, so he unhappily acquiesced. While all of this was happening in the west, Cambyses had set in motion a plan for an expedition to the south of Egypt as well. Having been unfamiliar with the people of Nubia, which is sometimes also called Cush, Herodotus here calls them Ethiopians, as that was the preferred classical Greek verbiage for them, he decided to first send some envoys, allegedly for the purpose of bearing gifts to the Ethiopian king. 
but whose true mission was to do reconnaissance and observe everything that they could about the land of Ethiopia and their people. So he chose men from the area around Elephantine, modern Aswan, who knew the Ethiopian language. They came across this knowledge because Elephantine was a trading outpost with the Nubians and Egyptians. It was almost exclusively manned by Hebrew mercenaries who set up a thriving community there sometime in the 6th century BC, worshipping the Yahweh alongside the local worship of the ram-headed Egyptian god Khnum. Manuscripts on papyrus from this era provide a fascinating glimpse into this unique society. Anyways, these Elephantinian envoys thus went off to Moreau, the Ethiopian capital far south between the 5th and 6th cataracts of the Nile River. The king of Ethiopia, though, immediately saw through Cambyses' plan, and so he held up a bow and told the envoys to relay this message to the Persian king. Whenever the Persians can draw a bow, as large as this one, as effortlessly as I can, then do make war on the long-lived Ethiopians with your superior numbers. But until then, thank the gods for not directing the minds of the sons of Ethiopia towards the acquisition of land other than their own. Afterwards, he handed the bow to the envoys and sent them on their way. Arriving back at Memphis, the envoys reported to Cambyses. He became so enraged and immediately made preparations for an expedition against the Ethiopians. So while Phanes was off getting lost somewhere in the western desert, Cambyses led the rest of the Persian army south into the kingdom of Ethiopia. In his angry haste, he forgot to order any additional provisions for food for such a long journey. Well, that would come back to bite them, quite literally as you will see. Before they had gone through a fifth of the journey, they ran out of all of their food and were forced to consume the pack animals until they finally ran out of those too. Cambyses, according to Herodotus, was not a wise man and continued marching forward, forcing his soldiers to eat what they could get from the land. Thus, they survived by eating grass, but when they reached the desert sand, this led his men to commit a horrible deed. They chose by lot one man out of every ten and devoured them. When Cambyses learned of this, he was terrified and finally realized that his soldiers were so ill-equipped to fight in the African deserts, so he decided to cut his losses and turn back north for Memphis. Having only made it as far south as the second cataract of the Nile, which is around the modern Egyptian-Sudanese border, but by the time he made it back to Thebes, he had lost much of his army to starvation and Nubian raids. Using their superior knowledge of the terrain and guerrilla warfare tactics, they inflicted heavy losses on the Persian army. It is entirely possible that a campaign in order to subjugate the Ethiopians never happened. Since the Egyptian elite despised Cambyses, more on that shortly, they may have represented as an inglorious failure on such a large enterprise what was really a successful effort in simply securing the southern frontier after a dynastic change, meaning Cambyses taking over control over Egypt. Because throughout Egyptian history, whenever there was a dynastic change, we see the Nubians in the south, or the Libyans in the west, often trying to take advantage of the transition and encroach on Egyptian territory. Anyways, for the next couple of years, Cambyses settled down at Memphis and enjoyed his new position as the Lord of the Nile. In order to provide some information, we must now use Egyptian inscriptions, because Herodotus doesn't speak about his governance of Egypt. Since his installation as pharaoh was met with general resignation, he decided to appoint local officials to instruct him on how to conduct himself like a pharaoh. He even left a royal inscription in the Serapium of Saqqara, 
recording his burial of a sacred apis bull with customary honors. With his blend of military might and cultural sensitivity, both the Egyptian military and population fell in line. The powerful priesthood of Amun was a different story, however. While feigning deference to the new regime, they dug into their heels when Cambyses taxed their enormous temple estates, something no native pharaoh had ever attempted. In response to their defiance, the priests were subjugated to increasingly harsh measures by the Persian authorities until they finally caved in. They would never forgive Cambyses for his rough treatment and would later do everything possible to slander his memory. Egyptian inscriptions also report that Cambyses took on a man named Ujap Nohorisnet as his chief advisor. He was a former admiral of Amasis' navy, who probably defected to the Persians during the initial resistance. He convinced Cambyses to move the Persian garrison out of the holy city of Sais and away from the holy temple of Neith, a mother goddess, because the optics of Persian forces there weren't good. Cambyses agreed to this, and he even made a visit there to worship and participated in a ceremony, much like Cyrus did at Babylon with Marduk. But Cambyses disliked the chief priest, who he felt taxed the people too much. Thus, he decreed that their taxes no longer were to go to the temple. Aside from this, the only other temple reported to be exempt from taxes was the temple of Yahweh at Elephantine, whose members boasted how they remained untouched while the gods of Egypt were overthrown. From these accounts, Cambyses seems to have learned from his father, respecting the conquered, adapting their ways, and being fair and merciful to the people, but he also made enemies with various Egyptian priesthoods. Herodotus, though, describes several stories that make him appear to be a mad tyrant. We already discussed his execution of the 2,000 Egyptian noble youths. Well, he also had left Memphis to go to the city of Sais in the Nile Delta, where he found the fresh mummy of Amasis II and had it removed from its tomb. Then he ordered it to be whipped, plucked out its hair, and stabbed and subjugated it to every kind of outrage imaginable. His men eventually became very weary as they continued to perform his commands, because the corpse, which had been embalmed, withstood this harsh treatment and would not fall apart. So a frustrated Cambyses ordered them to burn it, which not only was an Egyptian punishment for denying the pharaoh an afterlife, but also an act offensive to the Persians, as they believed that fire was divine and should never be polluted through the cremation of a human corpse. Thus, Cambyses had commanded his men to do something contrary to the customs of both Persians and Egyptians. However, Herodotus' account here is not supported by other evidence. In fact, the Persians usually were very careful to respect the local religion and customs of the cultures which they had conquered. Some scholars have suggested that Herodotus' disparaging stories about Cambyses may reflect an Egyptian hostility to the Persian king who had conquered them, since as we have discussed in episode 30, Herodotus said that he was relaying stories told to him by the locals. So the stories about Cambyses' madness were probably told to him by some spurned Egyptian priests who had an axe to grind. Anyways, the cruelty doesn't stop there, at least according to Herodotus. After he had arrived back in Memphis following his disastrous military campaigns, an epiphany of Apis occurred amongst the Egyptians. Herodotus equates Apis, the bull god of Memphis, with Epaphos, the son of Zeus and Io, who, as you may recall from myth, was turned into a cow by Hera after she discovered that it was her who Zeus was cheating on her with. Anyway, during the so-called Epiphany, the god appeared among the Egyptians. Afterwards, they put on their finest clothes, 
and began to celebrate a festival. When Cambyses observed them celebrating, he suspected that they were rejoicing at his miserable military failures. So he summoned the governors of Memphis. They explained to him what was happening, but Cambyses asserted they were lying and that they were in fact mocking him. Since his custom was to punish liars with death, he killed them all and then summoned the priests to see if they had any answers. But they relayed the same story, at which point he said if some benign god had arrived among the Egyptians, he was not going to miss seeing him. So the priest led him to the Apis bull, which the Egyptians believed was a physical manifestation of the god. Cambyses drew his dagger and struck it in the thigh, although he had aimed for its belly. Then he bursted out laughing and then ordered the priests to receive a good whipping and the execution of all Egyptians that he could see celebrating within his vicinity. The festivals were thus broken off, and the bull died from its wound. After this incident, Cambyses, who was only somewhat insane at this point, according to Herodotus, now went completely unhinged due to the impiety of his act brought on by his bout of jealousy towards the sacred animal. Herodotus next reports stories of how he treated his own family. His brother Smerdis, also known as Bardia, had been sent back to Persia because he managed to draw back the Ethiopian bow, which a jealous Cambyses could not. Then one night he had a dream in which a messenger came from Persia, announcing that Bardia was sitting on the royal throne and touching the heaven with his head. Cambyses took this to mean that his brother would take the throne from him, so he sent a man named Praxaspis to get rid of him. Bardia was at Susa when Praxaspis arrived, and he was killed, either by a hunting accident, or was drowned in the Persian Gulf. At least this is what Herodotus relays. As we will find out next episode, this may have been a false story disseminated around Cambyses' successor, Darius. Anyways, Cambyses also had married his sister, and he took her life too. Cambyses had pitted a lion cub against a puppy in a fight, and when it appeared that the puppy was losing, another puppy, its brother, broke its chain and went to its brother's side and helped him prevail over the lion cub. Cambyses' wife then started to cry, and when he asked her why, she said that it made her sad to see the puppy defending its brother, realizing that Bardia would not be able to defend Cambyses in the future. Cambyses flew into a rage at this remark and leapt upon her. She was pregnant at the time. She miscarried and died. Herodotus also reports stories of how he treated his own people. One day, when he asked Praxaspis, whom he honored most among all Persians, what the Persian people say about him and think of him as a person, he nervously replied that the Persian people give him high praise in all things, except they say that he is excessively fond of wine, and because of it, he often loses his mind. An angered Cambyses notices Praxaspis' son nearby, so he says, you will now find out whether the Persians are telling the truth or whether they are really out of their minds themselves. There stands your son. If I manage to hit him in the middle of his heart, that will show that the Persians talk nonsense. And if I should miss the mark, you may declare that the Persians are telling the truth and that it is I who am not sane. And with that, he drew his bow and shot an arrow at the boy, who fell to the ground. When the arrow was found to have punctured his heart, Cambyses burst into laughter and said that it is clear that he is not mad at all, and that it is the Persians who are out of their minds. Then he sadistically asked Prasaspis if he had ever seen anyone in the world hit his mark so successfully. Convinced that Cambyses was fully insane and fearful of his safety, he said that not even the gods could shoot so well. 
Cambyses was also known for giving out harsh judgments, such as the one given to a corrupt judge by the name of Sisamnes, who accepted a bribe to give an unjust verdict. Cambyses ordered his throat slashed and for his entire body to be flayed. He then used his skin to upholster the judge's throne. He then appointed that man's son, named Otanes, as the new judge, a position that forced him to sit on this throne daily, and Cambyses warned him not to forget the reason he is sitting on this throne when delivering judgments. He also took twelve Persian noble youths, and for no good reason, had them buried alive up to their heads. So what is the true nature of Cambyses? Herodotus reports that he was afflicted with a sacred disease, which is commonly used to refer to epilepsy because of the similarity between epileptic and prophetic seizures. However, that wouldn't explain the sadist stories. Herodotus is our main reporter for these stories, but he also acknowledges that they came to him through Egyptian priests, who still would have resented him for their loss of power. However, his Egyptian advisor, Ujjat Horusnet, painted a different picture of him on Egyptian inscriptions, and later Persian inscriptions failed to mention any strange behaviors. Furthermore, there is no independent evidence that supports Herodotus' assertion that Cambyses was insane. So in all honesty, we really don't have a clear picture on Cambyses from 525 to 522 BC. However, matter not, things were about to come to a screeching halt for Cambyses. From the perspective of the Persian court in Pasargidae, Cambyses was a disappointment. He had spent almost his entire reign either in Babylon preparing for war on Egypt or in Africa itself, and his neglect of the royal capital estranged him from those who wielded power back in Persia. Rumors also reached the Persian court of his string of military fiascos. Meanwhile, his brother Bardia, or an imposter who looked like his brother, depending on whether you believe Herodotus' account that he had him killed in secret, was presiding in the capital often and was showing himself to be a competent defender of the eastern frontier and an able administrator, seeming to reflect their father in ways that Cambyses never could. So in early 522 BC, Cambyses decided to head back to the capital and shore up his position. The summer capital where he was headed would have been Ecbatana, while Susa was the winter capital. Anyways, with his brother en route, Bardia openly laid claim to the Persian throne and offer the empire's citizens a three-year exemption from tribute and military service if they backed him. The choice for everyone in the empire thus was obvious. Bardia was their new king. A desperate Cambyses pressed his army onward and did so with such haste. But he was in too much of a hurry though, and as he jumped up to mount his horse at one point, the tip of his sword scabbard fell off and with the bare blade exposed, he accidentally stabbed himself in the thigh. In a bit of poetic irony, he had stabbed himself in the same place where he had wounded the sacred apis bull. The wound became infected a few days later, gangrene set in, and the infection took his life in early 522 BC at Ecbatana. Some archaeologists believe that he was later buried at Pasargidae and have identified his tomb, though this can't be confirmed with certainty. Another account states that he saw the writing on the wall and seen the position that Bardia held. He committed suicide. Some modern scholars suspect that Cambyses was assassinated, either by Darius, as the first step towards usurping the empire for himself, or by supporters of the actual Bardia. Regardless, Cambyses was now dead. He had ruled over the Persian Empire for eight years, from 530 to 522 BC. On the next episode, 
we will discuss the dynastic contention for the Persian throne between Bardia, or an imposter, and Darius, a distant relative of Cyrus. The winner was destined to be the next great Achaemenid king, whose military conquests and administrative changes would earn him a moniker similar to that of Cyrus. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 33, The Great King Darius. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally. Now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Lampades, Nymphs of Hades, from his album The Lyre of Hermes. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.